I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. If you're not reading queer writers, if you're not reading you know, writers of colour, if you're not reading non-British writers, if you're not reading women writers, you're limiting yourself and whatever you're producing as your work is really poor craft. Take a look back at your latest piece of work. Who are the characters of your story? Are they all people that look like you, that look at the world through the same lens as you do? Or is it a diverse mix of people from all backgrounds? Often, without even realising it, we leave certain people out of our stories altogether. We're so caught up in our own way of thinking that we forget to reflect the variety of voices that make up our society. So what if I, as a white writer, don't include the voices of black people, for instance, in my work? Well, art has always been a space for people to learn about the world. Even fictional tales can play important roles in offering audiences and readers new perspectives. Without proper representation, you're not only neglecting to capture the world as it truly is, but you're also doing your audience a disservice. With the Black Lives Matter movement gaining worldwide attention in recent weeks and months, it's clear that representation isn't just a matter of inclusivity. It's a matter of life or death. The arts, along with many other sectors, needs to step up to tell the real stories of people from all walks of life, to offer insights and education so our differences can be celebrated instead of tearing us apart. To explore this topic, our guest today is Sunny Singh, Professor of Creative Writing and Inclusion in the Arts at London Metropolitan University. Chapter one, a seat at the table. Whether it's in the books we publish, the staff and board members of major companies, or the images we see on TV, improving diversity isn't just a nice to have, it's an essential. When people from a range of backgrounds come together, we all benefit. Unique perspectives and experiences enable the most creative thinking. And although society as a whole is certainly heading in the right direction, it's evident that many people still face barriers when it comes to getting a seat at the table, whether it's because of their race, gender, or sexual orientation. To improve the diversity of literature that's made available to us, Sunny Singh and fellow writer Nikesh Shukla started the Chalak Prize, which celebrates books by BAME writers. Our idea was very simple. We would, first of all, disrupt publishing just by existing. But more than that, we would become a place where we would shine a light on writers of colour across the full range which is why we don't, um, we take every form of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, published scripts, um, children's picture books. We will accept, we, we, we ask for all of this. The, uh, the only criteria is it's somebody who is a writer of color, who is based in Britain. We don't even specify citizenship because British citizenship laws are a nightmare as we know from the Windrush scandal, for example, and that the book should originate here. So it, it, it in some ways rewards the publishing industry and the publishers who do the hard work. We try and be as inclusive as possible. So there is zero cost other than getting us the books to publishers or we, and we accept the, the submissions from writers, from agents, from publishers. We will accept anyone who is willing to submit the book because we know that a lot of publishers will not send out books for writers, even to awards that they're, they are um, eligible for. 
it's just you know even so, and we will accept it in any format so if some if a writer says look i have been chasing my publisher and they haven't responded we'll say well can you send us a pdf we will pass it to the judges and believe me that's happened that says really poor things about the, the publishing industry and that they can't press a button what else does the data tell us about the size of the problem is it everything from pay is it everything from you know opportunity to accessibility to just uh, how underrepresented are writers of color across the industry okay so i think it's 2014 there's a an international publishers report britain is one of the countries that publishes more books across the board i think it's in 2014 it was 20 books an hour the largest number of submission we've received has been this year across the board and this includes 23 books that were self-published because we also accept self-published books we have 153 books that were submitted through sort of formal publishing and then the published the self-published books I don't think, I mean, I am willing to cut slack for the fact that not every book that is published by a writer of colour in Britain is submitted to us. But we also keep tabs on what's out there, what's being done, what else is coming out. And if you could come up with a thousand books a year in Britain that have been published by writers of colour, that'd be a miracle. Wow. I mean, that's such a small number in the grand scheme of things what you said we're publishing 20 an hour and yet we can't find a thousand mm-hmm. in a year for writers of color and the thing is it's not that we can't find i could give you sit down and make you a list it would take me less than an hour to come up with a thousand brilliant people who could write books the books aren't being published over the weekend there was this uh hashtag on twitter uh publishing paid me and i think what was most depressing about it was not the big stars who were like the big names of writing, but just people who are, you know, middle of the rung writers. They don't sell huge amounts. They don't sell. They're not kind of like the great generators of profit for publishing. And yet they were making. They are being offered and given far greater advances than most writers of color can imagine. And I think that's where um, publishing needs to put its money, where its mouth is, because I was furious when I was watching all these, that this performativity of how they were standing in solidarity. Well, put in the bloody money. You know, there was the, the publishers conference. Where were, where were people of color in there? Where, you know, it was the independent publishers conference. Where were people like Jacaranda and Hope Road and People Tree and Nights Off, people who, you know, these are pub- independent publishers who are doing the heavy lifting. They weren't even represented there. They weren't even part of the conference. If you looked at the program, only white people in this country publish and only even the independent publishers are offered it. It was infuriating. And for all of my commitment to celebrate great writers, there's a huge amount of anger and frustration as well because our job is constantly much harder and made much harder by publishing that seems to begrudge every contract for the last couple of years i've hosted an event on world book night uh, in april and this year we had to do it 
online. And one of the writers on the official um, list of authors for World Book Night this year uh, was Mike Gale, who also read a passage out from his book the year before. Um, now, the reaction to Mike's work um, from readers of colour um, who are reading his stories is is visceral and it's and it's clear that he has a huge audience the issue i think that i have is that he's a brilliant writer irrespective of the color of his skin and yet unfortunately we we kind of default to you know championing um black rights or the rights of black people through his stories you think well actually no we need to take a step back here mike gale is a brilliant writer full stop Right. That should be mm -hmm. the narrative. That should be what happens. But it, it doesn't. This isn't an overnight thing, I think, because, as you can see from the world around us, <laughs> you mentioned Windrush. Right. That's been going on for a long time. And in fact, tonight, that um, BBC drama airs, the first episode mm -hmm. of that uh, airs tonight. Um, it couldn't be more timely, right, to be talking about um, these issues right now. But are we coming at them in the right way? Well, here's the thing. When, when I hear anyone say the word timely, I cringe. Yeah. And the reason for that is when is it not timely? Yeah. Right? We started the Chalak Prize in 2016. That's when we announced it. That was our, you know, we awarded it for the first time in 2017. By the summer of 2017, I was already hearing, and so was Nikesh and everyone involved with the prize, from publishing professionals how diversity as a trend is over. It's over? Yeah. Wow. That was just the first year. It wasn't like they'd done anything. Then a bookseller followed it up. Sarah Shafi wrote an incredible follow-up report, and she did two of those for the bookseller. And then the narrative shifted a little bit by 2018, where it became about, oh, you know, white writers can't be published anymore because you just have to be black and gay and this and this and this to even be published. And in the meantime, the numbers of books that they were publishing by writers of color had maybe gone up by five per year, but no. And, and it was extraordinary because even people who I would think are really well informed, our allies, our people who are right, you know, solid, would just say, yeah, well, you know, white writers can't get published because all the spaces have been taken. You must have it so easy because writers of color are just everywhere. And I was like, are you seeing this? Are you seeing the figures? So I think, you know, I always kind of go, look, it's been timely since 1492 at the very minimum. But really, 1860, that's when Queen Victoria takes over you know, the crown takes over from East India Company. He, you know, I think that's at least, it's been timely since then and every single day. And anyone who thinks somehow this is more timely now has the wrong end of the stick. We shouldn't wait for black men and women dying and being murdered brutally in order to suddenly decide we are going to stand in solidarity and publish more more stories that make humanize black men and women. We shouldn't have to wait till there are young kids in the street protesting in the middle of a pandemic, taking huge risks with their help, with, with their health, with 
you know, I mean, these are communities at highest risk. We shouldn't have to wait for that. Why is it timely now when kids are at risk? Why isn't timely 365 days of the year, every single year? Chapter two, stories are power. It's true to say that these issues haven't suddenly become timely. So why is it that it takes a death to reignite the conversation? Why aren't we always shouting loudly about these issues until they disappear forever? It's like a huge part of life's narrative if constantly being forgotten about, being buried in the noise. Beyond equal opportunities and being nice to each other, it seems that there's a deep societal problem at play here. And as writers, we have the power to redress the balance. We're not looking, I mean, this is not about being nice to each other. I don't care if people are nice to me. I don't even care if people like what I write or read me or anything else. What we're looking at is a structural issue. It's about power. It's about retaining that power. And I'm not surprised that the press and publishing and anything that is about knowledge creation and dissemination are in some ways structurally I'm not talking about the people who work in them, but structurally the most conservative of industries. Because to tell stories about each other and about others is a form of power. That's what decides who we consider a human, who, who should have rights, who should have the ability to walk down the road and not be killed by a cop or not be stopped by a cop, etc., etc., etc. So I, it doesn't surprise me that the greatest resistance comes from places and sectors of our society and our economy, economy that really control the narrative. And we can't change that by sort of individualizing it into personal morality and nicety, because that's not what it is. Doesn't matter how many times you sip wine with me at a book launch. It's about actually thinking about what you are complicit in. And that applies to all of us in whatever way, whether we we work for, you know, BBC or, you know, one of the Murdoch outlets, or we teach or we work for, you know, an indie press or a major one of the big fours. We should be aware that we are part of a structure. And if we are not resisting, actively at every single moment and every single day. We are complicit, but more than that, we are colluding with the structure that is harming all of us. Let's stay with that because I wanted to talk about Edward Colson and the statue in Bristol. Now, in terms of institutional behavior, he was a member of the institution. He was a member of parliament and the issue of that statue being torn down is interesting because the issue of the statue being there at all has been an issue that's been bubbling under for the last couple of years because there has been a re-examination of Colson and what he stood for and his role in the slave trade. I think that's that's an interesting backdrop to the, the question, which is, do you see unhelpful portrayals of issues like slavery in fiction, whether that be in literature or on the screen, that actually help to reinforce stereotypes? And if so, is there anything writers can do about that? Should we as writers be challenging ourselves to really understand these issues differently? 
I think so. So, um, look, yesterday I was looking at something that showed that the help has suddenly shot up to the top of Netflix watch lists because suddenly that's because people are, you know, white people are looking for stuff to talk, think about race. So you're going to the help? Really? I mean, you really want to learn about race and racism and you're white? Download Get Out. Do something else, not the help. You know, 12 years a slave. Why are these narratives constantly about some good moral white person coming and saving them? Why are, in these two narratives, black people somehow, their entire role is to ignite the moral compass of people within the text and the audience or the reader? And that is fundamentally an oppressive, unethical practice by any writer who takes that on. If you cannot consider others as equal human beings within your narrative, with a clear human role within that story world you are creating, you need to back off and rethink why you're writing that. I think Get Out is an excellent reference point. One of my favorite things about it never ended up being in the final cut of the film. Um, but if, and I would encourage people to read Jordan Peele's screenplay, in fact, early drafts of, of the screenplay, because in it, right at the very beginning, it's a very different opening. And he was very brave not to go with this, because I, when I read this, I thought this was excellent. There is a very white middle-class suburban family having a conversation about their holiday and they're going to Disney World. And the kid says, when we meet Mickey Mouse, is it really Mickey Mouse inside the costume? And that thematically so brilliantly captured what that entire film is about, that there are parts of that that were so brave because they make you deeply uncomfortable. The arrival at the house scene is a work of, it's just wonderful when you see it. And those are people that have seen the film will know what I mean. When you get there and you see the people that work in this house, that that's incredibly powerful, right? That's the point that you're that you're making. If you want to learn about racism, watch that. Don't watch the help. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much out there. William Melvin Kelly, I bet you've never heard of him. Never heard of him, no. Yeah, he was seen alongside. He started publishing way back when in the sixties and was often seen as one of the great American writers alongside, you know, the big names that came out in the 60s. He is possibly the least known writer. He published, I believe, four novels and never published any fiction after that. He, I don't know enough to say why he didn't publish, but the fact that these incredible works of genius were just allowed to disappear. Um, he spent his life as an academic after that. But you really wonder why these incredible works, something like A Different Drummer, which is, if you ever want to know how to write the other, that is your masterpiece. Someone who is not like yourself. As an African-American, he has all the reasons to absolutely hate the people he's writing about. But it's an incredible portrayal of white people, incredibly empathetic, thoughtful, considerate. So we know it's possible to do. 
if there was the one book I think everyone, everyone should read about racism, it's a different drama. I definitely think every white person should read that. It's been around for what, 50 years, 40 years? I think it's, it was published well before I was born because um, we had a copy, 1962. We had a copy at home, a very tattered old um, copy. And I then managed to get the new version and the new edition that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, but, you know, he's he's disappeared from our, our imagination. And that is not accidental. That is purposeful. That is deliberate. So I think that's where we, you know, that's why I'm constantly about, you know, we can't be complicit like this. And and that's a, you know, you don't choose that word lightly and certainly not accidentally. There is a complicity in that if it is societal or institutional. And what we're seeing at the moment is this this realization that we've probably all known but never done anything about. Um, there was a George um, W. Bush used to have this phrase several years ago. But if you're not with us, you're against us. And and it was you know a lot of people reacted strongly to that because they would say, well, why can I? Why do I have to choose? Why can't I not? You know, kind of sitting. Why can I not sit on the fence? I've seen so much over the last few days about if you're not strongly opinionated about this, then you are complicit in it. And the, and yet the narrative doesn't bear that out. The narrative is how um, irresponsible is it that all these people are protesting? It's almost as if we are deliberately subverting and changing the narrative to suit the narrative that we want to put out. To your point, the, the point that broadcasting and publishing is a power issue rather than a search for the truth. Am I, am I, am I crazy? Have I got that wrong? No, I don't think I don't think you have it wrong at all. Because if if it weren't a power issue, we would be covering this material over and over again. If it weren't a power issue, we would not even now be. You know, if I I can't bear to watch BBC because I constantly see incredibly impressive people, some of whom I know, um, some of whom I. I'm very privileged to count as friends who go on there day in and day out and are asked, will you tell us your experience of racism? Have you really experienced racism? And to me, that is deliberate. We have enough information. If you are a journalist who is going to ask a black woman or a black man or indeed a person of color, why are you protesting? Can you tell us your experience of racism? You should be ashamed. You should truly be ashamed. It's disgraceful. And the fact that this happens over and over and over again, 10 times a day, every time they pull up somebody to be on that, to me, that says, this isn't ignorance. This isn't learning. This is a deliberate decision being made over and over and over again to never let the conversation move forward. Chapter 3. Documenting the Story Broadening your scope, weaving in many different people from all sorts of backgrounds into your stories is clearly important for your audience, but it's also important for you. Researching the lives of people from cultures you're unfamiliar with, reading works from authors you've never discovered before, it improves your craft, and it also helps you grow on a personal level. That's certainly been the case for Sunny. It's always quite interesting because... You know, I always go back to um, Baldwin and that, that wonderful point he makes about if you can make somebody see the world just just tiny bit different, then you've changed it, the, the world. 
And I was very fortunate because I grew up in India. It was the Cold War. That meant that we had an enormous, and it was a complete, you know, flowering of post-colonial literature in multiple languages, not just English. So I grew up reading as, as a child. I grew up reading Indian books first. And the biggest amount of books we were getting from outside were the Soviet books. With a very clear kind of, I mean, they're not, they weren't great on obviously race and so on, but for their time, 60s and 70s, there was very much this kind of, we are going to talk about stuff and it's going to be about equality and, and revolution was a good thing. Um, you know, so when you're reading children's books about, you know, how to, how to pull down the regime. <laughs> um, so in that sense, I was quite lucky. And as I started looking at British books, especially I remember Blyton, um, and, and, you know, just, I think I'd already got that consciousness, so I would cringe. There was just that sort of constant sense that these are books that are not for me, and they're actually quite awful about people like me. I think if you grow up somewhere when where you are embedded in those kind of books, and they're actually lauded and held up as great examples, often but quite on an emotive level. You know, I see white writers kind of go on and talk about, you know, Millie Molly Mandy. It's like, can we just look at the fascism in there? And you, you're not from the 30s. You are, you know, in your 30s and 40s in 20-something, 2020. And you're looking back to what are really icons of racist, fascist, colonial literature as your great emotional, sentimental, beloved books. What is wrong with you? And I think when those those writers then take up writing, they bring that sensibility, they bring that ideology with them. You said about issues. It's very easy to, to put writers who are, let's say, from the margins in different ways, uh, so queer writers or writers of color or women writers or you know, black writers, and say, oh, they write about issues. Well, actually, so do white writers. The only difference is they're writing to uphold the status quo 99.9% .9 of the time. They are so writing about issues too. It's just that their issues are how to uphold the power and ours is how to resist it. That's really the difference. That's fascinating. Um, you talked about the prize and the fact that for you, you would love to see that figure of a thousand books by writers of color. Um, I would like to end on a high. Um, that would only be the beginning, right? That's, that's, that's barely acceptable in terms of, you know, scratching away at the, at the margins. Is there anything you think that people listening to this who are writers, if they, if they were to take one thing, one or two things away from this about their own work, to try and move issues in air quotes, um, you know, like this forward and to try and change the narrative, what, what, what could they do? I think a starting point is to say, look, reflect the world around you. Don't be afraid. We'll, we'll all get it wrong. That's not the point. It shouldn't become your excuse to not, you know, so I'm shocked to read books or see movies or television about London and it's all white. It's like, what's going on there? write us. You might get us wrong, but write us. But also then do the hard work. 
don't don't replicate just the same old stereotypes. The simplest way to do it is read us. If you're not reading queer writers, if you're not reading um, you know, writers of color, if you're not reading non-British writers, if you're not reading women writers, you're limiting yourself and whatever you're producing as your work that you may think is great is really poor craft. Sexist, homophobic, racist, imperialist writing, ableist writing is a failure of craft. It's shit writing. That's it. I know it doesn't sound very nice. I know there'll be lots of writers who'll be like up in arms about it, but that's the that's the way I look at it. No, it, it backs up something that comes up time and time again in these shows. Um, we recently spoke with um, Ita O'Brien, who was the intimacy coordinator on Normal People. And one of the things she said is that you have a duty as a writer, if you're writing about intimacy in um, a sexual practice that you don't necessarily understand, you have a responsibility to go and talk to people that do understand it. You're saying exactly the same thing, just about different issues. I think that writers should not just write, but they should read. And the more you read, I think the more you understand. And what I say to all writers is very similar to what you just said. The first time you write it, it won't be right. So don't waste time getting it wrong, because the sooner you get it wrong, the sooner you can learn from that and the sooner you can move on. Yeah, agree. And do it again and do it again till you get it right. I mean, each bit of criticism should actually be something you improve with. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Sunny Singh for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? It's not just enough to include people from diverse backgrounds in your writing. You must do their stories justice. Research the people you're writing about, talk to them, learn about them, absolutely explore the narrative, but inform yourself before you do. When you do include diversity in your writing, take a step back and consider whether you're leaning on stereotypes or old cliches. The wrong portrayals of diverse people can be just as harmful as forgetting about them altogether. And finally, a huge takeaway for me Reflecting on what Sunny said about my use of the word timely, there's nothing timely about the discussions we're having regarding racial prejudice faced by black men and women. It's not suddenly an issue following the death of George Floyd. Discussions about race have been timely for centuries and will continue to be until the balance of power is shifted. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Next week is the second of our shows relating to race, slavery and the Black Lives Matter movement. My guest is Professor Vincent Brown, Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. When you make people slaves, you compel them to live with you in a state of war. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. Keep writing.